The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 20 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC20. And this is Secret Church 20, Episode 6. So, what does this mean for our lives? Like, how does this affect the way we live tomorrow then? How does this affect the way we vote this year, if you're in the United States, or the way we post on social media, our political opinions, the way we interact with others in the church who may have different opinions than us, the way we watch or read the news, the way we pray, the way we talk. How does this affect our lives? Practical takeaways. So here's what I did. I took the five purposes that I, we set out at the beginning of the night, and I put them back here at the end. And I just want to, under the banner of those, offer a slew of practical takeaways in light of these five purposes. And I haven't listed all the scriptures over again. I've listed some, but I've tried hard to just offer takeaways that align with what we've already seen in God's word. So these aren't just kind of out of nowhere. It's hopefully grounded in based on the exhaustive time we've spent in God's word already tonight. So here we go. First, person we set, first purpose we mentioned for our time tonight, we want to recognize clearly what God has said in his word about government. So here's some practical takeaways based on what we've seen. One, recognize the role of God in government. He is the God of all the kingdoms of the earth, Isaiah 37, 16, the creator who has authority over all, which means we can rest in his authority. He's the judge to whom we will all give account, which means we can rest in his justice. Like we can know justice is one day coming because God is just. And at the same time, we want to be ready to stand before him as our judge. He's the savior who desires the redemption of all in this fallen world. He's the king to whom all glory belongs. So we see God over government, yet working in and through government, which leads to this next one. Recognize the responsibility of government. God has given government responsibility to do justice, to promote good, to punish evil. So if someone were to ask you after this night, what's the purpose of government? I hope you'd be able to say God has instituted government by his design to do justice, to promote good, to punish evil. Recognize the responsibility of government and recognize the limits of government. So there are critical things that a government cannot do. Government cannot remedy human depravity and government cannot change the human heart. Only God can do these things by his grace and the power of his spirit, Ezekiel chapter 36. So don't expect government to do what only God can do. Recognize the limits of government and at the same time, recognize the power of government. So yes, government is limited, but it's also powerful. By God's design, government has a significant influence on the spiritual makeup of a nation. Especially when you realize, remember, that government is a battleground of the gods of a nation. So recognize the massive influence government has on the spiritual makeup of a nation and the moral fabric of a nation. So don't underestimate the power of government. It is limited. Don't don't overestimate the power of government. It's limited, but don't underestimate its power either. So hopefully, okay, That's one of our purposes, see God in relation to government. Second purpose tonight was to be able to distinguish carefully between God's word and our wisdom regarding government. Remember how we define those two concepts, God's authoritative word in scripture, and then our attempts to wisely apply God's word in the world in which we live. What I've done here is I've just listed out a, a litany of distinctions that I think we need to make as we seek to understand and apply God's word, well, understand God's word truly, and then apply God's word wisely when it comes to politics and government. So first takeaway here, I wanna encourage you, based on all we've seen in God's word, to distinguish between primary and secondary political positions. Remember, we kind of set the stage for this in the start. Let's come back to it. We label primary that which is essential to the integrity of Christian faith and practice. Christians, 
to recap what we said, divide over political positions of primary magnitude that are clear in scripture and essential to Christianity. And for those who don't share these political positions, it's questionable if they're Christians, it's likely cause for church excommunication. So what are you gonna put in that category based on what we've seen in God's word and other truths in God's word? What are you gonna say if you don't agree with this, it's questionable whether or not you're even a Christian and should be part of the church. And then what are you gonna put in the secondary category? That which is not essential to the integrity of Christian faith and practice. So again, to repeat, Christians disagree over political positions of secondary magnitude that are less clear in scripture, not essential to Christianity. And while these Christians may remain together in the same church, these differences may mean less partnership with one another in the political arena, even as these Christians are glad to still stand together around political issues of primary magnitude. And I guess what I'm after here is fighting to maintain a Romans 14 and 15 type unity in the church despite a variety of disagreements even ones we may feel strongly about. So I just wanna encourage you to be very careful about putting things in the primary category that don't belong there. And for everything else that's in the secondary category, like see it as such. Yes, have strong opinions about these things, but not to the point where it hinders your fellowship with others in the body of Christ. As an example, you've already heard me mention things that I would put in these categories. So aborting babies or overt demonstrations of racism promoting an unbiblical definition of marriage, showing a pattern of recklessly disregarding un- injustice. I would put these things in the first category. But who you vote for, or even what policies you might support that you believe best work against racism or injustice that are less clear and not essential to Christian faith and practice, I may have strong feelings about, but I would put in the second category. The big picture point is have a category of distinction in your mind between primary and secondary political positions. And second, Distinguish between church and state. Just think about why this distinction is important based on all we've seen. For example, government, not the church, has authority to use the sword. That's the language we saw in Romans chapter 13. God instituted government for justice along these lines, to make arrests, to enforce civil regulations. And the foundation for that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 9. On the other hand, church, not the government, has authority to declare salvation, has authority to declare that someone is in Christ, a follower of Jesus. The government doesn't declare someone a follower of Jesus. The church does that through baptism. So keeping that distinction is vital and requires wisdom. Another example, not listed here would be, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter six. There are some disputes that should be handled primarily in the church. There are others that should immediately involve the state, like abuse. Making that distinction is really important, really wise. Next, distinguish between rigidity and flexibility. So on what issues of politics and government should you be rigid, inflexible, immovable? What issues of politics and government should you be flexible, more open? So here's how I would encourage you to think based on what we've seen tonight. And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about primary and secondary, but keep, keep going a little deeper here. On one side, think rigid, rigidity regarding issues of God's word, where God's word is clear and essential. Again, what we saw in Romans 14, be rigid, hold tightly there. On the other side, think flexibility regarding issues of our wisdom, the application of God's word to issues that are less clear or essential. This is similar to that, again, primary, secondary, but I want to mention here that it's helpful to see across a spectrum of issues. So think, for example, maybe there's a bill in the United States Congress that involves substantial needed relief for the poor, but also loosens restrictions on abortion. Or maybe there's a policy that would tighten restrictions on abortion, but would loosen the definition of marriage. What you're facing at that point are competing injustices where you have to make hard decisions. Ideally, you want to work to address all injustices, but inevitably along the way in this fallen world, it's likely that you'll face potential compromises. And knowing where different issues lie along the spectrum is really helpful. Like how you understand positions on immigration, abortion, poverty, systemic racism, where you place things along a spectrum is really important for discerning when you're going to be more rigid and when you're going to be more flexible. 
For example, many Christians would say, in light of the evil and horror of abortion, that even a candidate who could balance the nation's budget tomorrow and end all taxation, they would still never vote for that candidate if that candidate supported the killing of babies. That is a potential Christian position to take that stakes a weight of rigidity on that issue for good biblical reason. But it's not just which issue might, might weigh heavier than other because you may have, well, you think of another example. You may value policy that cares for the poor, but as you do, you know you're, that policy that cares for the poor may risk, cares for the poor may risk devaluing personal responsibility or private property, which means that at some point you're going to start dealing with some trade-offs or compromises. Or what about a situation, go back to, uh, well, think about injustice, a proposed law that means improving an injustice slightly, but still affirming the bulk of that injustice. So do you support a law that still affirms abortion, but places more restrictions on it? Or do you wait and you hold out until the total eradication of abortion is on the table and then allow looser restrictions in the time being? What about proposed laws that still discriminate in some way, but they discriminate less than the current laws? Do you support that or not? Like these are the kind of the complicated questions. None of them are easy. And all of this though, you want your level of rigidity and flexibility to be informed by God's word, not personal preference or party opinion as much as possible. Discern between rigidity and flexibility as you think through these things. Think about another distinction. Distinguish between prescribed and criminalized. So here's what I mean by that along with a framework I would offer for thinking through this, going all the way back to what we saw in Genesis 9. So sin should not ever be prescribed by government. So government should not mandate or require or encourage people to sin. That would include then laws that encourage abortion, but also laws that encourage gambling or laws that encourage sexual sin. The Bible compels us to work against government prescribing evil, sin. But not all sin should be criminalized by government. Meaning, for example, all sexual sin should not have a criminal penalty according to government, right? There's all sorts of sinful thoughts or words or actions and other things like pride, gossip, lust that should not carry a specific criminal government penalty. So at what point should it be criminalized? And I think the foundation that Genesis 9 gives us is that when an action brings clear and positive harm to another person, like murder or stealing or physical violence, then it should be criminalized by government. Even there though, it's not always easy to determine. For example, gossip at one level should not be criminalized, though it's still harmful to people. At the same time, it is good to have slander libel laws that rightly guard against defamation of character. So we need wisdom, right? At what point does sin cross the line in such a way that it should be criminalized by government? We need wisdom to distinguish between prescribed and criminalized. We need to distinguish between creating and executing, knowing that both are important. Here's what I mean by that. And on one hand, in government, we create laws rightly. We want to create laws that are right and just and equitable. But it's not enough just to create laws rightly if those laws are not executed impartially. We must execute laws impartially. So think about, we've mentioned it different times. Think about racism and civil rights as an example here. Like Jim Crow laws were unjust. Laws enacted between 1876 and 1965 that mandated racial segregation in public facilities in ways that led to all sorts of economic, educational, social injustice. Clearly, those laws needed to change. But just changing laws, like creating laws rightly, is not sufficient if those laws are not executed impartially. I remember hearing Tom Skinner, an African-American man, shared a conference, a missions conference years ago about how he grew up in Harlem, Harlem with thousands of others living in 
run-down, rat-infested, dilapidated apartments that the landlords never came around to provide services for. He described how it was not uncommon for a mother to wake up in the middle of the night and send a piercing scream to the complex because her two-week-old baby had been gnawed to death by a vicious rat. When the reality is that rat never would have been in that building if the landlord, to whom she had been paying high rent, had been providing the kind of services she justly deserved under the law for the kind of rent she was paying. The problem is not that the laws were not in place. The problem is there was a building code inspector who represented the city who was supposed to check out violations in buildings. He was by that building the day before, was met at the front door by the landlord who palmed $100 in his hand and the building code inspector kept going. That landlord didn't get arrested. Nobody was locking up the building inspector. Instead, the one who got Penalized was this mom's frustrated, bitter 16-year-old son who, after seeing his two-week-old sister die, went out in the street and threw an object through a window. So it's one thing to create laws rightly. It's a whole other thing to execute laws impartially. So this question leads into the entire discussion in our day of excessive police force, incarceration rates. These are not discussions for Christians to avoid. These are Discussions for Christians to engage in fully. Why? Because we care about justice and we want to work for just laws and just implementation of those laws. We don't just care about creating laws rightly. We care about executing laws impartially. And we need God's word to wisely inform how we do that. Similarly, distinguish between process and opportunity. So justice means fair process. Well, we just said that all people deserve a fair process, fair rules to live and play by. And supposing we all agree on that, I would submit, though, based on all we've seen in Scripture, is that justice means, also means fair opportunity because not all people are starting from the same place. There's no question that a child in my home who's born into a family with a mom and a dad and a stable income, access via insurance, the best medicine in the world, access to high-quality education, has opportunities that a child born in an at-risk community with no mom or dad, no stable income, a totally different insurance with far less medical benefits, far less quality to qual- access to quality education, at what level is government responsible for helping provide fair opportunity for that child? And as soon as I ask that question, some people inside are shouting like, yes, we need to work for that. Other people are shouting, you're a socialist who's like ready to ruin America. I want to be clear. I'm not like proposing a solution here. I'm just saying based straight from scripture, we need to wisely think about these things from all kinds of angles according to God's word. Just government. Look at Psalm 72 cries, may he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, crush the oppressor. I should have put Proverbs 13, 23 here. The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it's swept away through injustice. Like Christians of all people should be concerned, not just about children and families who have much opportunity, but about children and families who have less opportunity. Like, think about it. This is the way, the way we think about abortion. We know that some children in a mother's womb are at greater risk of danger than other children. We're working hard so they will all have an opportunity to live and thrive in this world, like without exception. So why would we work for them to be born and then forget about them once their mom gives birth? No, we care about their lives, not just in the womb, but out of the womb. We care about their good in all of life, not just the first nine months. We want process and opportunity for all, which leads to the whole another whole another area of wisdom. We need to distinguish between personal responsibility and systemic realities. Personal responsibility, systemic realities. So it's at this point in political discussions that Christians really divide big time. And the most stark way we divide is actually over, and at least in the United States, over uh, you know, racial background and thinking about personal responsibility and systemic realities and the disparity that that exists, like. Paint a picture. Now, this is an admittedly broad stroke. I'll go ahead and 
acknowledge that. It may not apply to the exact city or community where you live in, but the reality is you look at the facts when it comes to disparities in jobs, income, and housing. African Americans in the United States are much more likely to be unemployed than white Americans. Like the current ratio of two unemployed African Americans for every one unemployed white person has held pretty constant since 1950. When you measure household wealth, on average, the median net worth of African Americans is 8% that of white Americans, 8%. African American babies die at a rate over twice the frequency of white babies. African American mothers are four times more likely to die in childbirth than white American mothers. Young African American males are six times more likely to be murdered than, the young white, than our young white, white American males. Put it all together, you look at every study there is, you will see that white Americans are far more likely than African Americans to get a quality education, to have a high paying job, and to live in a more affluent neighborhood with less crime. Like, it's just like the realities. Now, I need to make a couple of caveats here. One, I mentioned that's a broad stroke. And the last thing I want to do is equate African American with poor and educated, uh, poor and uneducated. We know, obviously, that is not the case. One of my concerns with even talking about this disparity is it might create some artificial sense of pity that actually contributes more to the problem. My point is just to make clear that skin color, specifically white or black skin color, actually affects one's life in the country in which I live. The other caveat is I'm not even saying why this disparity exists. We have all kinds of ideas about why it exists. That's what we're about to get to. But the point is a disparity exists. Can't deny that. It's not like opinion. It's fact. Now, here's what's interesting. So a large research project was done where people heard these disparities and then they were asked, why do these disparities exist? And basically, respondents could could answer alongside, uh, along a spectrum. So over here, they could say these disparities were due primarily to a lack of individual responsibility, basically a lack of personal motivation among individual people to work hard and climb out of poverty. Two, kind of in the middle, they could say disparities were due to primarily to unequal education, lack of access to quality education. Or then on this side of the spectrum, they could say that these disparities were due primarily to systemic problems like unjust systems and structures of discrimination in society. So the researchers questioned people. They questioned white and black, men and women, and then they asked if they were professing Christians. Here's what they found. Here's what they found. They found that white non-Christians explained these disparities more according to this side of the spectrum. So more white non-Christians were prone to answer that racial inequalities, these disparities are due to individual factors. Some lack of education, but less systemic problems, unjust systems, structural discrimination. On the other hand, more black non-Christians were prone to answer that these disparities were due to discrimination in structures and systems, systemic problems, including education, but less so personal responsibility over here. And here's what's really interesting. Among professing Christians, what the research has found is that white professing Christians were even farther over here on this side of the scale, even more likely to explain these disparities due to lack of individual responsibility. And then among black professing Christians, they were even farther over on this side to explain these disparities due to discrimination in American systems and structures. Now here's the point. I'm obviously not saying all white people believe this or all African-Americans believe that. I'm not even saying this is the perfect way to ask these questions. I'm not the one who came up with the research. Here's what I took away from it. What was so eye-opening for me when I saw this was to realize that basically the more Christian you are, so to speak, the more divided you may be on this question of individual responsibility or systemic realities. 
And seeing this was so humbling and so helpful. I started thinking about the tension that exists, not just in the culture, but in the church, when statistically more white brothers and sisters in the church are immediately prone to think on this side, more black brothers and sisters in the church, more immediately prone to think on this side, which affects our thinking on a lot of different things when it comes to economic policy, social structures, social systems, Christians on different pages. And this is just one example of white and Black brothers and sisters on different sides of an issue. Then you think about all kinds of other different people. Think about the church I passed with over 100 different ethnicities represented. That's a whole lot of different perspectives. All the, the whole point is we need wisdom from God as we think about both these things, personal responsibility and systemic reality. And I would say what we've seen in Scripture is that both are biblically important. Like I put Exodus 1 here in your notes, the picture of how systemic realities are important. When Pharaoh ordered the Israelites to work as slaves, that had a massive impact on their lives. So how does God, God's word lead us to think wisely here? I think we would all say, based on God's word, that opportunity in any nation is a right. Like the opportunity to live is a right. That's why we work against abortion. And as we've said, not just for the opportunity to breathe, people to breathe in the world, but to thrive in this world. God wants all of his image bearers to thrive in this world for his glory. So we work for that, for all people in any nation in the world. At the same time, privilege in any nation is a reality. Like think Exodus 1, Egyptians had privileges that Israelites did not have. Americans have privileges that Somalis don't have. Like some Americans have privileges that other Americans don't have. This is simply an acknowledgement that in any nation, some groups of people experience different realities in that nation than other groups of people. And there are many reasons why that's a reality. In a fallen world, some of those reasons in some circumstances do involve oppression or discrimination. There's no question the history of slavery and civil rights in the United States has contributed to disparities I mentioned earlier. And other forms of oppression and discrimination have affected other groups of people that we haven't even talked about. So I should mention at this point, I know even privilege is a charged term. Just because someone has privilege does not mean they're responsible for oppression or discrimination that led to their privilege. So just because someone is born with certain privileges, even if those privileges are a result of oppression, that person is not suddenly guilty of oppression. Now, is that person in some sense responsible for using their privilege to work for others, to have similar opportunities? That's a question that God's word compels all of us to answer wisely. How do we wisely do justice according to God's word? And I think a starting point is acknowledging every individual within a surrounding structure so we care for individuals and we value individual responsibility at the same time we realize individuals exist within a surrounding structure and certainly we can't ignore that structure. Instead, we acknowledge the surrounding structure that affects every individual. Insofar as we ignore surrounding structures, inequalities will remain, injustice will reign. So it's right and good for all of us to consider any and all evidences of systemic injustice and to work against it while promoting personal responsibility every step of the way. God's word compels us to wisely do both. That's the takeaway. God's word compels us to wisely do both. All right, two more areas where we need wise discernment based on God's word. One, distinguish between rights and right. There's a significant difference between those two. So justice is not just giving people their rights according to their definition of rights. There's all kinds of rights that my kids think they have that are not right. They can't demand a right to ice cream every night or midnight bedtime or no school. Like justice and goodness is not simply giving people their rights according to their definition of rights. Justice is ultimately doing that which is right according to God's definition of right. There are so many discussions in government and politics that revolve around rights that totally ignore God's definition of rights. We must distinguish in those discussions between rights and right. Finally, we need to wisely distinguish between temporary and eternal. And what I'm acknowledging here is that there are many things that were called to in this world to do, some of which are temporary and some of which are eternal. And I think a practical takeaway from all 
we've seen tonight is that we want to work hard for that which is temporary while working hardest for that which is eternal. So think about an example of this. Think about an issue we haven't talked about as much, like immigration policy in a country. Based on God's word, we want to work hard to wisely care for sojourners, especially in a world where the, world where the migration of peoples is so prevalent, oftentimes due to extreme poverty, extreme injustice, oftentimes in ways that those two go hand in hand. And what we've seen in scripture compels us to work hard to do justice, love kindness when it comes to men and women who need homes, who long for freedom, who need food and water, while at the same time realizing that the greatest need for every immigrant man or woman in the world is ultimately the gospel. For a temporary home on this earth and food and water, as necessary and vital as that is, will not get anyone to heaven. Now, I want to be careful as soon as I say that because the need for the gospel and emphasis on that has led Christians throughout church history to sometimes totally ignore injustice on the earth. Like we talked about that earlier, church leaders telling Martin Luther King Jr. as he's in jail, just relax, stop your protesting, just preach the gospel. No, that's why I put both these things, work hard. Like we work really hard to do justice and show mercy in this world, work really hard at this while always remembering, never forgetting that people's greatest need is the gospel. Doing both in a way that honors God requires much wisdom based on the word of God. That's what all this above is about. So these are obviously heavy issues to think about in the, like as we're now in the middle of the night, but we wanna distinguish carefully between God's word and our wisdom regarding government and to apply God's word as wisely as we possibly can in the world which we live, knowing it's not always easy or simple and we make different decisions or take different courses of action in our efforts to wisely apply God's word, which leads to that next purpose. We wanna unite joyfully around God's word in the church as we work charitably in the world according to our wisdom. So knowing, I think we've seen to this point, issues of government politics, we're gonna come to some different conclusions that we believe are wise based on God's word, but we're gonna disagree on what's wise. And into that reality, God urges us as the church through his word, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called with humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So how do we do that amidst all our differences and complicated decisions in politics? Well, one, flowing straight from Ephesians chapter four, prioritize the church, not political position or candidates or party. Jesus does not tie himself to a political party. Jesus ties himself to a local church. Therefore, we don't prioritize political party. Political party. We prioritize local church. Follow this. Not saying political party can't identify with, I don't, I don't see that in scripture, like command against that by any means, but I do see a priority on the local church. Like think about an example here. Most people who identify as evangelical Christians in the United States are Republicans, which leads some people to think or even say, well, the Republican Party is the Christian Party. But that is an extremely unhealthy thing to say. Why? Well, for one reason, not all Republicans are Christians. You'd be tying the name of Christ to an institution where many participants and leaders don't believe in Christ. The Republican Party is not Christian which might lead some people to say, well, maybe we should start the Christian party then. But we know from all we've seen in scripture, that's not good either because that would be to tie the name and reputation of Christ to an institutional structure and set of policies that Christ has not tied his name to. What institution has Jesus tied his name to? The church, the community of people called by him to be ambassadors for him in this world, which means that the most important things Christians can do politically, follow this, the most important thing Christians can do politically is to be the church. 
to be the people God has called us to be together. What we saw in Acts, this unique political community, united by God's grace, devoted to God's word, committed to caring for one another, gathering for worship regularly, interceding in prayer continually, showing the goodness of God, spreading the gospel of Christ as we bear his name in the world. Prioritize that. That's what Jesus prayed for us, for you and me in John 17. Unity in the church. Like he prayed that, then he went to the cross. Unity in the church is so important that Jesus died for it to give us unity, not around our ethnicity or socioeconomic status and not around our political policies or positions. Jesus died to make us a people united by his blood. And don't miss this, based on what Jesus prayed, the unity that the church displays to the world affects the spread of the gospel in the world. May they be one as we are one so the world may know your love. So how do we prioritize the church? One way is to live in diverse community. Meaning, let's not form churches based on ethnicity or socioeconomic status or political policy or position. Come together. Let's come together in churches across political lines, across generational lines, across racial ethnic lines, where we acknowledge and appreciate our differences, where we don't pretend like we're the same in every way. We're not. That's the beauty of the church. See it all throughout the New Testament, where people coming together with differences, where we address our disagreements, where we listen to and learn from one another. I, I think about where I started tonight when I shared about President of the United States coming to visit our church unexpectedly, different people reacting in different ways, people firing all kinds of messages on social media at one another, at me, without sitting down and like listen to and learn from one another. So just think with me, why would some people think it's a good idea to pray for the president on stage and gathering the church? And why would some people think that's not a good idea to pray for the president on a stage and gathering the church? I need to clarify, like that's the question. The question is not whether or not to pray for the president privately or publicly. Of course we do that. Every follower of Jesus believes we do that. That's clear in the Bible. We read it, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Pray for all kings, those who are in high positions. That totally got missed in this whole media firestorm. People thought, are you, are you saying like we shouldn't pray for the president? What kind of pastor are you? Like, I would be thinking the same thing if I were to pastor say we should not pray for the president. Like, that goes totally against God's word. Like, it's a closed-hand thing. Like, we pray for the president. No question. That was not the question on that Sunday. The question was, do we bring a president out on the stage in our church gathering to pray for him publicly in front of all kinds of cameras. And we don't have a Bible verse for that one. Like 1 Timothy 3 doesn't say, when the president is on his way back from playing golf and stops at your church, here's what to do. So followers of Jesus who believe the Bible might answer that question in different ways. Like think about it with me. On one hand, some might say with deep conviction, like Absolutely, 100%, yes, we should bring the president on stage in our church gathering and pray for him. Like what a unique opportunity to obey 1 Timothy 2 together, to do so publicly as an example that could encourage a lot of people to pray for him, how to pray for him, knowing this honors the president. That's a biblical thing to do, Romans 13, respect, honor governing authorities. 1 Peter 2, honor the emperor, regardless of what anybody thinks about the president, honor him, count it an honor. Don't you think it's an honor to pray, not just in private, but in public, to pray with, for him, just like you would do for any president, regardless of party affiliation, and not just for the sake of the president, like we care for the good of our neighbors. It's good to pray publicly with and for our leaders that they would work for justice and mercy in our country, particularly when it comes to such important issues as the sanctity and dignity of every human life in all kinds of spheres. And then in this prayer, you have an opportunity to pray the gospel, not only over the president, but in front of all kinds of people who need to hear the gospel, like I think there are probably some pretty good reasons to say, yes, pray publicly for the president on stage in a worship gathering. But other followers of Jesus would say, 
with deep conviction. Yes, by all means, pray for the president. And yes, pray for the president, president publicly in our worship gathering. Absolutely, for all the good and right and biblical reasons you just listed. But do not bring the president on stage into the gathering of the church when so much of politics in our country is all about appearances. You're taking a holy moment and turning it into a public spectacle that can and will be and has been twisted and used and abused by the media or by politicians for all kinds of agendas. Some, maybe many, will view this as our church's endorsement of the president or his policies. At the very least, our pastor's endorsement of the president or his policies, which will be really discouraging to at least some, maybe many, many members of the church who also devalue the sanctity and dignity of human life, yet disagree with some, maybe many of the president's policies or find some of his words, action, words or actions offensive, not just personally, but biblically offensive to God. Not to mention those outside the church who've been so turned off to the church because of all the ways they've seen the church co-opted by political party and position, they'll see this on the news and want nothing to do with McLean Bible Church. Yes, we want the gospel to spread, so don't mix the gospel with political party and position. And on top of that, what about the clear warning in James chapter two to not show favoritism or preferential treatment in the gathering of the church? That's a command in the Bible too. Even the biblical president of challenging leaders in political positions. John the Baptist didn't hesitate to do that. He lost his head for it. So if you're gonna bring the president on stage, why would you not speak more clearly about what God's word says to him? In the end, just ask the question, does bring the president on stage lead the church toward unity in the gospel? If not, then don't do it. Now, again, I'm not saying that's all the reasons, but it's definitely possible for followers of Jesus who fully believe the Bible to have different convictions here. Like one side argues to bring the president up on stage for the advance of the gospel in one way. The other side argues to not bring the president on stage for the advance of the gospel in another way. One side says we need to be unified in bringing the president up. The other side says we need to be unified by not bringing the president up. Both sides can actually be passionate about the gospel and unity which is why some people were really disappointed that Sunday in our church because they thought their pastor was compromising the gospel and what truly unites us. Others were really disappointed with what I wrote on Monday because they thought their pastor was shrinking back from the gospel and trying to manufacture a false unity. You say, what do we do then? I don't think there's a tidy answer to that question, but I think the answer starts with stopping and listening to, learning from each other. I think about things I heard that week, read that week that said, don't listen to those people in the church who think this or that. And I thought, those people are our brothers and sisters whom we love, which means, yes, we listen to them. At the very least, we listen to them. James 1.19, we're quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to tweet or post. We live in a culture that entices us at every moment to speak our thoughts from behind a screen instead of looking into the eyes of our brother and sister in love and listening. God, help us to listen, to understand What's happening instead of jumping to conclusions? Help us to respect the convictions of those in the church who disagree with us. I would just ask you, how many people in your church do you know and have close relationship with that might approach this issue or other political questions differently than you? And if you don't have many friends like that, let me encourage you to ask why. Have you united in your church around Christ or just around people who look and think like you? How can you seek relationships with brothers and sisters in the church who may have a different perspective on you than some, on some of these things? Again, uniting, I'm not talking about like a fake unity, uniting around core essential truths and practices, but with differences on less clear and non-essential truths and practices. And next time before you post or tweet or go on a rant about what you think, maybe sit down with another brother or sister in Christ who might think differently, ask some questions and actually listen. Don't post Tweet, share what you think. Sit down face to face 
ask questions and see what God might teach you about what he's, how he's leading others to think through these issues. Again, they want to be driven by the word. You want to be driven by the word. So stop, listen to, learn from one another, and look for opportunities. So now keep going your notes to love and defer to one another. That's what Romans 15.1 said. It said, look for opportunities to please your brother. And I, I think there's so many applications of that. But that's one of the things that I was so convicted about that week in particular because, well, I think when I look back at that Sunday, I was faced with a decision and I chose what I think most people in our church probably would have chosen. And I don't think it was sinful. I I really believe I did it to honor the Lord. But I also know that it wasn't edifying for some people in our church. And that's why my heart was really heavy because I love every member of the church that I pastor on both sides of this issue and a number of other issues. And I really want to look for opportunities to live for the good of Bible-believing, Bible-obeying brothers and sisters in the church who may have different convictions than me. Because this is what the gospel, I think, compels us to do. Romans 15, 3, for Christ did not please himself. So I don't know all that means in the past or the future, but I do believe, do know that if we maybe would learn to love more this way, the gospel might be a lot more clear to a watching world around us. So I actually want to make along these lines particular application for pastors and church leaders based on exhortation to preach the word in 2 Timothy 4. I want to encourage pastors, let's proclaim God's word, not your wisdom. Meaning proclaim with authority and boldness and humble unction that which is clear and essential in God's word, but then work hard not to bind the consciences of church members over that which is not clear in God's word. If God has not spoken, let's not speak like he has. The pastor tells people what they must do, how they must think according to the word of God. So let's not speak about what people must do or think if that's not clear from God himself. Let's work hard not to make statements that ignore proficient knowledge and practical nuance. Like pastors, we're called first and foremost to be experts in the Bible. So let's not quickly assume that we're also supposed to be experts in economic policy and a whole other host of political issues. The pulpit is not the place for us to do our political experimentation in our minds. It's the place for us to declare what God has said. So on one hand, yes, like speak on abortion, right? Because God has directly spoken on his work in the womb in Psalm 139. Yes, speak on racism because God has clearly declared every person in his image, created every person in his image, Genesis 1. Jesus fundamentally died for every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, Revelation chapter 5. On the other hand, you may not like President Trump's, President Trump's executive order on immigration, but the biblical command to love the sojourner doesn't prescribe what the specific details of an immigration policy in a 21st century republic filled with 330 million people should look like. Or you may like President, President Trump's Supreme Court nominee, but there's nothing in the Bible that directly commands Christians to be originalists when it comes to the Constitution of the United States. So let's be careful to proclaim God's word, not our wisdom, and place your emphasis in the church on that which promotes unity around Christ. Let's be careful not to throw our weight as pastors behind causes that Bible-believing, gospel-embracing followers of Jesus might disagree on. Let's work hard not to alienate church members over non-essential differences of conscience. And not just in the pulpit, but in what we post on social media. If we're only attracting Republicans or Democrats to our church, if we're only attracting people from a certain ethnicity or certain background, then we're likely emphasizing things in the church that detract from unity around Christ. After all, he's the goal. 
So let's work hard not to tie the name of Jesus where Jesus has not tied his name. And as we've seen, Jesus has not tied his name to certain political parties and Jesus has not tied his name to certain political candidates. The church is not for Trump or Biden, Obama or Bush or any other leaders in the world. The church is for Jesus. And the danger is when pastors in the church or the church itself tie the name of Jesus to a political candidate, we're now tying Jesus to the words, actions, decisions, agenda, platform of that candidate in a way that Jesus is not said to do. There's not a verse here that says who to vote for. Now as Christians, and we're about to talk about this, we all make hopefully biblically informed decisions on these things. We don't sit back and do nothing, but as pastors of God's people, as shepherds of God's people who may have different convictions that are just as biblical, shepherds of, God, of people who may have just as biblically informed convictions as yours are, but are a little bit different, we've gotta be careful in our position as pastors with an authority that is totally derived from God's word, that we faithfully proclaim God's word, not our opinions, even our biblically informed opinions, and we zealously guard the name of Christ from anyone or anything that would risk his reputation. That leads to the next practical takeaway, take exalt the name of Christ. That is above every name. We just talked about this. Jesus does not tie himself to political parties or candidates. Jesus ties himself to a local church and Christians. So how does this apply? Not just to pastors, but to all followers of Jesus in the church. Many of the same exhortations are the same. We don't tie Jesus to political parties and candidates. We tie Jesus to local churches and Christians. The most important thing churches can do is exalt the name of Christ. Now, that leads to the question of, well, I'm gonna vote for somebody or for some people, including many in the congregation I pastor, I'm gonna work for some of these issues. I'm gonna work for a political candidate. There are people who do that across the church I pastor. We have many people in our church who work in the current president's administration at different levels. So is that wrong or unhelpful? And based on all we've seen in scripture tonight, I would say absolutely not. That's not wrong or unhelpful, that's good. It's good for followers of Jesus to work in government. But whether we're plain old citizens or government leaders, we still must all be careful with how we use the name of Jesus. To be careful when labeling something the Christian position like no one can say their position on healthcare or tax policy or immigration or foreign policy is the Christian position unless Jesus has said, this is my position, which in almost every case, he's not spoken in that way. And as soon as we say that, we're basically saying that anyone with a different position for what we're saying is in sin, you've just now raised things to the primary level where anyone who disagrees with you should be excommunicated from the church. Be very careful when labeling a political position as the standard of righteousness before God. Like there are... Times when I mentioned already, like abortion, we've come back to over and over again. There better be firm biblical basis for that. In a similar way, be careful when labeling someone the Christian candidate for all the same reasons. Unless Jesus has said, I endorse him or her, that statement is not true. Now you might say, okay, well, what about a politician who's actually a Christian, who's a follower of Christ? And I would say, to the extent that person is actually a Bible-believing, gospel-embracing follower of Jesus in a church that has said, yes, this person is a Christian, then absolutely call them a Christian, just like you would any other Christian. But beware that even still, as soon as you say this is the Christian candidate, you're likely saying more than that. At least in the ears of what most people hear, you're saying this is the person whose platforms and policies align with Jesus. And undoubtedly, there's some things that are there that totally align with God's word, but there's going to be some parts of that candidate's policy or platform that Jesus has not spoken specifically on. I guess what we've got to be careful here, what I'm advocating for here, encouraging here based on all we've seen in God's word is more careful use of language to say this person running for office is a follower of Jesus who's trying to make biblically informed decisions on public policy instead of just blanket saying this is the Christian candidate as if Jesus has officially endorsed them, their platform, and their positions. 
I'm saying be cautious with how we use our words. Be cautious with labeling something a gospel issue. So yes, we want all of our political calculations to be informed by the gospel. That's why we're doing this secret church. But when you say immigration reform or affordable housing or environmental care is a gospel issue, you're in danger of saying this policy or that position on this issue is what people who believe the gospel must embrace. And for all the reasons we've already discussed, we need to be very careful with that kind of language. Again, I would encourage reversing that kind of language reserving that kind of language for primary, clear, essential issues in Christian faith and practice, the kind of things that you would excommunicate someone from the church over. In a similar way, be cautious when labeling someone God's person because going all the way back to the beginning of the night, people hear different things when you say that and that can mean all kinds of different things. After all, Pharaoh was God's person in the sense that God raised him up to show his power but that certainly didn't mean God endorsed him as a person or any of his policies. Come back to why all this is important. Whenever we use language like this, we're not helping promote the unity of the church. We're taking matters not specifically addressed in God's word, matters of our wisdom, our good faith efforts to apply God's word, but requiring others in the church to be like us in a way that God has not called us to. So I hope, I hope these exhortations to prioritize the church, like be the church, live in diverse community with one another, listen to, learn from one another, love and defer to one another and exalt the name of Christ together, being careful with how we use his name and how we use our words. Doing these things, I hope, will help us unite joyfully around God's word in the church as we work charitably in the world according to our wisdom. Okay, last two purposes we set out for tonight. We said we wanna live justly, love kindness and walk humbly with God in our nation in the countries where we live. We wanna do Micah 6, 8. And I put the diagram back in your notes that we started with. So we have 64 biblical truths, 12 gospel conclusions to stand on. How do we do Micah 6, 8 in a world of political ideologies, constitutions, parties, candidates and policies? Well, big picture, represented at the top of that diagram, we live justly. What does that mean practically? It means you and I live with integrity. Proverbs 10, 9, we strive for justice in our political positions for that which is right and good and all the ways we've seen in God's word. And strive for justice in your personal life, meaning live justly in righteousness at home, in marriage, in parenting, in family. Are you often more unkind to your family members than you are to other people? That's not just. Live justly in your work, all your personal dealings. Have you ever employed someone who may be an immigrant, for example, to do something for you and figured you could barter them down real low because, well, you know, it's not just, let's strive for justice in our personal lives and every facet of our lives. It makes no sense to argue for justice in the public forum and ignore justice in our private lives. To campaign for justice when others are listening and close our eyes to justice when no one is watching. Live with integrity, care for family. From the very beginning of the Bible, it's one of the clearest ways we can carry out justice in the world by stewarding our God-given responsibility for exalting Christ in marriage, stewarding our God-given responsibility for raising children through parents. Let's care for families in the church, support one another's families as the church, live with integrity, care for family, work for liberty, realizing based on all we've seen, freedom of religion is ultimately given by God, which means it's rightly granted by government. And this is, really is, in a sense, the most foundational freedom we have. Like, think about it. If government can mandate what you believe, or if government can deny you the opportunity to live within your beliefs, then where will its reach end? What, what would keep it from dictating what you can read or write or hear or say or how you should live? No, government does not exist for the establishment of religion, any religion, including Christianity. Unfortunately, this is a reality for many Muslim nations around the world where government does, does exist for the establishment of religion. At the same time, government does not exist for the elimination of religion. That's a reality for communist regimes around the world. And while not at all the level of communism, I'm concerned that this is increasingly the trend in my country. We're setting up 
increasingly a secular state that leaves no room for religion in the public square. Government doesn't exist to eliminate or establish religion. Government exists for the exercise of religion. And that language is crucial, exercise. It's not just freedom to worship as if we just confine our faith to what happens in uh, episodic gathering. No, kind of jump down here. Those who gather for worship in private settings scatter to live out their faith in the public square. So faith by its very nature cannot be private. It's inevitably public. It's exercise. It affects the way we live. As Christians who live, study, work, and play in every sector of society, we live our, our convictions in every sector of society. That's the exercise of religion. So we have the freedom to worship granted by God, or ultimately given by God, granted by government, to live out our faith, not just in episodic gatherings, but in everyday life. I can think about my friend Carl, who's behind the scenes making this simulcast happen right now. And he and his family have been at the center of a case here in the U.S. where with their video media business, they have stated they won't video or support certain events that go against their convictions as followers of Christ. And their case has risen up to the highest levels of government. And I thank God for Carl's courage. And it's not been easy. And others who I know who are humbly and with compassion yet conviction applying their faith to every facet of their work at great cost. Because of this foundational reality, freedom of religion is granted by God. So how do we live justly? We work for liberty. We wisely engage in the struggle struggle for liberty in your nation, wherever you live, which means that in one sense, you work to stay out of jail for your faith. You work to promote religious liberty where you live to the extent that you can. At the same time, you prepare to go to jail for your faith, knowing there may come a day when any one of us, we might have to choose between obeying God and obeying government. And we want to give our ultimate allegiance to God, which is so much easier for me to say in the United States than it is for many brothers and sisters who are listening right now in places in the world where this liberty is not a reality. That's a fundamental part, though, of why we do Secret Church, because we want to encourage one another to appropriately engage in the struggle for liberty in other nations on different levels, on a general level, generally on behalf of all people. I am thankful for people in my government, including some people in the church that I pastor, who are actively working in different ways to promote religious liberty around the world through the means of government. That's an expression of justice. I should pause and point out here, you'll notice we didn't dive specifically into foreign affairs and specifically the use of military might in a government. We didn't talk about just war theory or anything along those lines. I thought about it, but that was the challenge of the secret church. Like that's one issue. Along with all these others we've mentioned from immigration reform, tax policy, redlining, housing regulations, incarceration rates, gender definition, discrimination. Like we could keep going on. Trust you get the point. And some may be disappointed that we didn't dive into all those issues. And if that's you, well, Feel free to stay up for the next seven hours thinking about through all those issues and you'll just be getting started. My aim tonight was to lay biblical foundation for thinking through all these kinds of issues so we can work through those issues with God's word as brothers and sisters in the church who believe believe the same truths about God, government, and the gospel. So anyway, back to the picture here. We engage appropriately in the struggle for liberty in other nations, specifically on behalf of the church. The Bible beckons us. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. Those who are mistreated since you also were in the body. Like we have family members right now who are in prison for their faith, who are being persecuted for their faith and we cannot ignore them. So let's learn about the persecuted church. Let's listen to the persecuted church, get to know their stories. Let's pray for the persecuted church as though in prison with them and let's serve along the persecuted church. Let's alongside the church, persecuted church. Let's look for opportunities to go to them, serve with them. That's one of the reasons we're starting this urgent initiative, kicking it off tonight because we want our brothers and sisters in the front lines of persecution to know they are not alone. To know that we are with them, behind them, for them, as their brothers and sisters, they're not alone. Work for liberty. Continuing on with ways to live justly, be the best citizen possible. This is the will of God, that by doing good, 
You should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Be the best citizen possible in whatever country you live. Work for the poor and the oppressed. This is pleasing to God, good for others. Persuade people for the good. Listen closely here. Like one of my concerns we've always seen about being careful with our words, not dividing over less clear or non-essential things. One of my concerns, people walk away thinking, okay, then I shouldn't spend a lot of time thinking about those less clear or non-essential things, or I shouldn't talk about them with other Christians or non-Christians for that matter. And we can almost sink into a sort of political passivity. That's certainly not what the Bible's encouraging us to do because I believe the Bible is telling us like live justly, like do good in the world, which means wisely apply God's word as best as we can in the world around us, which means we need to think about politics. We need to think about political issues informed by God's word. We need to think well and wisely about all these kind of issues we've talked about and make reasoned arguments for how to do justice that are biblically informed. Even when we disagree with other Christians and certainly with non-Christians, we need to persuade people for good in our government, whether it's everyday citizens or leaders in the political sphere. We live justly, not by sitting back and staying silent, but by being informed citizens with good recommendations that we share with others about how to promote justice in our government, always keeping in mind that unless we're speaking authoritatively from God's word, we're speaking humbly in all of our efforts as we aim for wisdom. Just live justly by persuading people for good, by paying taxes to the government, paying taxes is doing justice. April 15th every year is an act of worship to God. We're obeying God. Live justly by voting for just policies and candidates. Obviously, this applies to those in democracy where you have a vote. When that's the case, we have a responsibility before God to use our, our, our God-given opportunity to vote to affect policies, candidates who lead in government. So vote for just policies and candidates. Knowing as we've seen, such voting most often involves complex calculations because there's hardly a policy that's perfect. There's definitely no candidates that's perfect, candidates perfect. So how do you decide who to vote for? Here's practical encouragement based on all we've seen. You decide what order to put these in. I'm assuming you'll end up weighing factors in different ways, but evaluate personal character in the person you're voting for. Evaluate professional judgment, wisdom, and skill in the work you're electing them to do. Evaluate political ideology. What are the political foundations upon which a candidate is running? What are that candidate's political priorities? What's their political platform? Evaluate cultural direction, knowing that political decisions decisions affect cultural direction. Which direction will this candidate lead the culture around me? And then evaluate ultimate commitments. Ultimate commitments, like what at the core is driving this person? What is non-negotiable, essential to them? Evident not just in what they say, but in how they live. Now, again, I'm not supposing those recommendations just made voting easy or they would all, that we would all be on the stage at this point if we just evaluate in this way. Some would look at this list and say, there's no question I would vote for Donald Trump as president. Others would say, there's no question I would not vote for Donald Trump as president. I'm not saying who you should vote for because God has not spoken on that. I'm just saying vote because God has called us to live justly. He's given those of us in a representative democracy our responsibility to choose the people who govern and the policies according to which we organize ourselves. So let's live justly by being the best citizen possible and by being the best Christian possible, living worthy of the gospel of Christ, love your neighbor as yourself, knowing that neighbor love realizes that our rights are not most important. This is a different way to live. Neighbor love realizes that others' needs are far more important than our rights. That's what 1 Corinthians 9 is all about, letting go of our rights for others' good. Love your neighbor, become like your Savior, like Jesus who loves justice, Isaiah 42, and lays down his life for others, 1 John 3. Live justly, love kindness, Colossians chapter 4. 
Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so we know how you ought to answer each person. So here's just some practical questions to ask yourself when you think about really all of life, but particularly about your interactions and politics. Are your thoughts, desires, actions, and words gracious? Are they seasoned with salt, Colossians? Is your tone authentically empathetic? Is your timing appropriately patient? So this is where I just encourage you to guard against going public with your thoughts when you're most angry. There's a time for showing righteous anger, but make sure it's righteous and at least consider if waiting for a clearer mind and maybe a good night's sleep is the wiser way forward, which you might be looking forward to right now. Are your thoughts, desires, actions, and words charitable? Particularly when you're thinking about interacting with people with whom you disagree. So just think right now about some politician that you just don't, don't really like or a news commentator that you can't stand. Like, are you always or usually assuming the worst in them? Do you ever acknowledge good in them? In disagreeing about ideas, are you demonizing people? Remember, that's the name of the game today. People who think differently than us are not just mistaken, at least according to us. No, they're a toxic combination of ignorant, conniving, and evil, like a mortal threat to everything that is decent in the world. Like, is that kind of the train of thought your mind is going down and your zeal for truth are you acknowledging trade-offs are you acknowledging that everything is probably not going to be exactly as you think it should be or are you considering trade-offs potential compromises even incremental steps that you can agree on with others besides your view is probably not perfect it probably comes with some difficulties as well so are you being honest about those or are you ignoring them are your thoughts desires actions and words intentional do you ask someone with whom you disagree, how'd you come to that conclusion or help me understand your perspective? Or if you don't know that person, do you stop to listen and learn as best as you can where they're coming from? You're stepping into their shoes to really ask, why do they think this is best or what is most just? Along those lines, are your thoughts, desires, actions, and words fair? Or are you assembling or attacking straw men? One of the easiest things to do in an argument, even in our own mind, is to present someone else's argument in a certain way that they actually never said, then to attack it as if you're attacking what they were actually saying. I've been guilty of this, certainly had this done to me. It's an easy way to make ourselves feel superior over someone else's ideas instead of fairly and justly dealing with what they were actually saying. Are your thoughts, desires, and actions, and words fitting? What I mean by that is are you recognizing that not all issues are equally important or not all errors are equally evil? Not all issues equally important. So do you argue with the same zeal for every single policy as if the world will fall apart if it doesn't pass? Or do you kick the conversation into high rhetorical gear for so many things that even you, lose sight, even you lose sight of what is really most important? Are your thoughts, desires, and actions and words intelligent? An intelligent heart requires, acquires knowledge. The ear of the wise seeks knowledge. The reality is most of the problems plaguing any one of our countries are probably not going to be solved by 90 seconds of reflection. And if there was really an easy, simple solution, it's at least worth considering if maybe it has been tried by now. So before stating your thoughts on something, at least ask, have you researched responsibly? Are you responding ignorantly? When in doubt, it's probably wise not to pontificate on a complicated issue that we started thinking about after reading one article about it. I hope purpose of these questions is just to help us to love kindness, meekness, gentleness in a Christ-like way as citizens in our countries. Live justly, love kindness, walk humbly. Put on as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Wow, what does it look like to do that in your approach to politics and party? I've mentioned political party at many points tonight, knowing this is more applicable in some contexts than others, but I trust we all realize most any political party has strengths and weaknesses, including anyone we might identify with. Most any political party has idolatrous trajectories, including any party we might identify with. No political parties have a justice monopoly. Democrats don't have a monopoly on justice in America, and Republicans don't have a monopoly on justice in America. This is really important to know, particularly in a place like America, where there's a two-party system, and Christians often feel squeezed into a mold when the reality is biblical principles are not isolated to one or two of these options. And both platforms are flawed. 
That doesn't mean all political parties are equal in their moral bearing. It does mean it's at least helpful to look at what good concepts of justice might be driving positions on a whole wide range of spectrum instead of just two particular options. In the end, sometimes God's word may lead you to unlikely alliances where you're standing with a political opponent on an issue which you believe is a wise application of God's word, even though it takes you out of step with those you normally stand with. At other times, God's word may lead you to stand alone. But this is humility, right? Not being concerned about what others say or think, which is the ever-present temptation in politics, but instead to be concerned about what God says in his word and leads you to do by his spirit. Walk humbly in your approach to politics and party. Walk humbly in your posture before God and others. Acknowledge grace from God in your life, knowing that anything good in you, any good idea in you is evidence of the grace of God. And celebrate the grace of God in others' lives, even with those whom you disagree in their motives and their gifts. Like maybe they're not out to ruin the world, including you and everyone in it. Maybe they actually think what they're doing is best and most loving and most right, even if they are mistaken. After all, you've been mistaken a few times before too. Aren't you thankful for grace that has been given you? Celebrate grace from God in others' lives and their motives and their gifts, even or especially when their views are different than yours. All of this under the banner of that fourth purpose for our time together tonight, that we might live justly, love kindness, and walk humbly with God in our nation. Which leads to this quote that I've included here. It's actually uh, technically from Wayne Grudem, but it's based on research from Alvin Schmidt, a church historian. And I included it here because I hoped it would be an encouragement that when God's people live justly, love kindness, walk humbly with God, they, we, can, and will actually have an effect on the world around us for the glory of God. Follow this with me. Christians have influenced governments positively throughout history. Historian Alvin Schmidt points out how the spread of Christianity and Christian influence on government was primarily responsible for outlawing infanticide, child abandonment, and abortion in the Roman Empire in AD 374. Outlawing the brutal battles to the death in which thousands of gladiators had died in 404. Outlawing the cruel punishment of branding the faces of criminals in 315. Instituting prison reforms such as the segregating of male and female prisoners by 361. Stopping the practice of human sacrifice among the Irish, the Prussians, and the Lithuanians, as well as among other nations. Outlawing pedophilia. Granting of property rights and other protections to women. Banning polygamy, which is still practiced in some Muslim nations today. Prohibiting the burning alive of widows in India in 1829. Outlawing the painful and crippling practice of binding young women's feet in China in 1912. Persuading government officials to begin a system of public schools in Germany in the 16th century. Advancing the idea of compulsory education of all children in a number of European countries. During the history of the church, Christians have had a decisive influence in opposing and often abolishing slavery in the Roman Empire, in Ireland, and in most of Europe, though Schmidt frankly notes that a minority of erring Christian teachers have supported slavery in various centuries. In England, William Phil Wilberforce, a devout Christian, led the successful effort to abolish the slave trade, slave trade and slavery itself throughout the British Empire by 1840. In the United States, where there were vocal defenders of slavery among Christians in the South, they were vastly outnumbered by the many Christians who were ardent abolitionists, speaking, writing, and agitating constantly for the abolition of slavery in the United States. Schmidt notes that two-thirds of the American abolitionists in the mid-1830s were Christian clergymen, and he gives numerous examples of the strong Christian commitment of several of the most influential of the anti-slavery crusaders, including, and he lists their names there, and he says, others too numerous to mention. The American Civil Rights Movement that resulted in the outlawing of racial segregation and discrimination was led by Martin Luther King Jr., a Christian pastor and supported by many Christian churches and groups. Now, here's the deal. Even as I read that quote, I want to offer a caveat because I think that quote fails to acknowledge other ways that Christians have unfortunately promoted injustice in the world at different points. And even this description of those who oppose slavery or the recognition of Martin Luther King Jr.'s work, it does seem to gloss over all the active unjust work that was happening in the name of Christ during all that time. It almost seems to make the church out to be the hero when sometimes the church was the opposite. But I guess that's part of the point. How we act as the church 
as citizens in our government will affect the shape of our government for better or for worse. Will affect the shape of people's lives for better or for worse. And God has called us clearly and unequivocally all throughout his word to live justly, love kindness, walk humbly with him for good in our nation. Which leads to the last purpose for which we set out a long time ago. You've hung on, final purpose. We wanna live zealously for the spread of God's love and the glory of God's name among all nations. This is the great commission Jesus has given us. This is where all of eternity is headed, Revelation chapter five. So what do we do on this earth? Let's pray for God's kingdom to come, Matthew six, knowing just like we saw in Revelation eight, the prayers of the saints will ultimately usher in the coming of God's kingdom. Let's pray for God's kingdom to come. Let's live for God's commendation alone. Let's say with our lives, wherever we are in the world, this is our faith. We must obey God rather than men. No matter what it costs, let's cling to the truth of his word, knowing that it will stand forever. Let's follow the leadership of his spirit as wisely as we can and wherever he leads us in the world. May our yes be on the table. God, lead our lives and our families and our churches with all of our resources, how, resources however you desire, and let's long for God's son to return. 2 Peter 3.13, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Oh, church, proclaim his gospel. Let's proclaim his gospel, the good news of his kingdom to everyone you know, right around you, far from you, particularly in these days of a global pandemic, proclaim his gospel with urgency to everyone you know and to every nation on earth, to all the people groups, particularly those who've never heard his name. God, spend us for your glory among all the nations, among the hardest to reach peoples on the planet. Let's proclaim his gospel and in the second Peter three like way, let's hasten his coming with godly holiness in countries where injustice abounds, wherever we live, striving for holiness, living for justice, loving God with all our hearts, loving our neighbors as ourselves. Let's live with godly holiness in countries where injustice abounds and with all our hope in a kingdom where righteousness dwells. So here's the deal. I started tonight talking about a surprise visit from a president one Sunday in church. Well, one day, if we're still alive on that day, you and I are gonna wake up in the morning and we're gonna have no idea what's gonna come later that day. We'll have no idea who's gonna make a surprise visit. We'll be going through our day, business as usual, when all of a sudden, instead of a voice calling you or me from backstage, we're gonna hear a trumpet boom from the sky above. And in a moment that we will have waited our whole lives for, we're gonna see the face of our King. And you and I won't have any problem making a unified decision that day. For all who have put their trust in Jesus from every nation, tribe, language, we will fall on our faces in adoration, then rise with all those who've gone before us and enter into eternal joy under his rule and his reign for all of eternity. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So here's what I wanna do. I want us to close in prayer and uh, I just wanna invite us to the extent with which it's possible where you are sitting to maybe get on our knees before God. I'm standing here in a room alone but I'm just picturing like tens of thousands of people scattered around the world right now in this moment on our knees before God.
just crying out to him, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as is in heaven. So would you do that right now? Maybe just to get on your knees. Uh, actually just hit me that as a result of this camera set up, I'm gonna stay standing, but I really wanna be on my knees right now, but uh, well, it doesn't matter. You don't need to see me. I'm going under my knees and uh, I just wanna lead us in, in prayer and us to call out right now to God as his people, his children scattered among the nations. God, we pray like you taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be the name of Jesus. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we pray. God, we pray that your name, your great, glorious, majestic, holy name, Jesus, that your name as Savior and Lord and King would be made known among all peoples, among people in our nations, wherever we are living right now, from the United States to Australia to Afghanistan to Cambodia to Laos to Turkey to Kyrgyzstan to Vietnam, all the places where we're gathered right now, God, we pray that your name would be exalted in our nations, that you would use our lives and our families and our churches in these nations to make your glory known. And God, we pray that you would spend us as you send us into other places for the spread of your glory where your name is not now known. God, we pray, we pray for Somalia, and we pray for North Korea. We pray for Yemen. God, we pray, pray for places in the world where there's so little access to the gospel. God, please, please send us out. Please cause laborers to go into these places. Please use our lives, our families, our churches, our resources for the spread of your glory to every corner of the earth. Oh God, we praise you for your word. We praise you as our king, and we pray that you would help us with these two passports you've given us. Help us to faithfully glorify you as citizens on this earth and ultimately glorify you as citizens of your kingdom in heaven. We long for the day when we will see your face and we pray that you would help us to glorify you maximally from this day until that. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of us around the world in this gathering, all of us said together, amen. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.